Jesus told his disciples in the book of Mark, chapter 16, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And for over 2,000 years, this has been the mission of the church. Go, preach, evangelize, disciple. For reasons hard to understand, the church has slowly found itself drifting away from this mission. I believe it's time for the church to turn away from the social environment and sounding board for personal preference it has created and get back to its roots. In this podcast, we're going to refocus and attempt to get back to what matters, the gospel. This is the Lost Mission Podcast. All right, guys, welcome back. Um, <laughs> we got a new intro video if uh, <laughs> if you were watching just now, so I'm kind of excited about that. I really hope that everything works out with it. If it didn't play now, then I'll just try to put it in um, sort of in post, I guess you could say. But um, anyway, I'm excited about that. And guys, I am excited about this study that we're going to begin tonight. Now, last week we had Dr. Stephen Boyce on the show, and he he just had so many wonderful things to say about Desiderius Erasmus and the Textus Receptus. And if you didn't if you didn't catch that video or, the, or on the podcast later, um, I highly recommend before you watch this video to go back and check out the interview with Dr. Boyce. Guys, it was fantastic. But um, tonight's video is, well, I guess you could say we finally arrived. Uh, we've gone through history up until we are finally at the point for the time of the translation of the King James Version of the Bible. And I am, I'm telling you, I've been really excited and looking forward to this episode. Now, likely we're going to do this in two parts. We're going to see how this goes here and uh, possibly we'll have to break this up into two parts because there's just so much information here. And um, I don't see how I'll be able to squeeze it all into one episode that you guys uh, would be able to or would want to just sit down and listen to. If it were too long, I wouldn't listen to it either. But... All that said, guys, I'm just going to jump into this tonight. There's a lot lot to do, a lot to be said, so let's let's get into it, all right? The King James Version of the Bible, the most widely read version of the Bible, uh, English version. It has been incredibly important for over 400 years. If you are anything like me, you are likely brought up reading, loving the King James translation. And if you're like me, you still love the King James Version of the Bible. Um, it, is, it is phenomenal. It's fantastic. And as I have done this research on the KJV, I really feel like I've grown a deeper appreciation for the translation. Um, because it's just such a rich historical uh, period of time in which it was developed. There was a lot going on within the church. There was a lot going on in England. Um, just it was a very busy time, and it was really that time of sort of high. Um, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. Possibly high formality that existed um, within sort of the monarchy. It was. It's just an interesting time. All right, but let's get into it here. Okay, the KJV episode. What was the social and political climate of the day? So, before we can just dive right into the KJV, before we can just get into the conversation, let's set the stage a little bit. Let's try to understand where we are in time and kind of what's going on, all right? Um, obviously, 
James has just become king of England. But prior to his becoming uh, king of England, there was some divisive things that had gone on. Um, the reformers had fled away to Geneva, Switzerland. Um, Queen Elizabeth has ruled in power for many years. She doesn't have an heir behind her. And so sort of England is beginning to wonder what's, what's going to happen when Elizabeth dies, all right? Uh, so the early 17th century was a time of transition in the English crown. Mary, Queen of Scots, had been deposed to Scotland, where she reigned for many years. Uh, these two divided crowns, one in Scotland, one in England, had been seeking for some form, some sort of reconciliation for many years. And so with, with the death of, of Elizabeth imminent, with it sort of hanging over everybody's head, uh, everybody, or most people, were maybe a bit nervous, if I could put it that way, with, with, without running the risk of over-exaggerating the issue. Um, they, were, they didn't really know exactly what was going to happen, Okay. Um, no English heir to take her place. This union of the crowns, Scotland and England, this union of the crowns would take place under James VI of Scotland, right? So James is a Scottish man. He, he, he's, <laughs> I, I, I like James for that reason alone. He's, he's, he's Scottish, all right? Um, but when he becomes king of England, he becomes James I of England, and so, as the story goes, James was actually in bed, but not yet asleep when news reached him that Elizabeth had died. Um, this had happened some hours earlier, um, on March the 24th, 1603. All right? And so, thus begins the reign of King James. Elizabeth has, has died. Um, his mother has died. I believe that Elizabeth actually had um, Queen Mary uh, killed, murdered. Maybe not murdered, but executed. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, and so upon the death of Elizabeth, James, almost by default, becomes then king of England. But who was King James, all right? He, he's an interesting character because there seems to be a lot of different a difference of opinion on exactly the kind of man that James was. Now you can do your, your, your study and do a historical overview of him, and this isn't really intended to be that. More of a commentary, just a quick commentary on who he was. But when I read of James, um, I kind of think of him as being, in some ways, a man's man, uh, and in other ways, kind of the polar opposite, everything that we think a man's man wouldn't be. So on the one hand, you have James, who, who greatly enjoys hunting. Um, he uh, had these sort of brash Scottish ways about him. There are stories told of maybe not James, but some of the, the translators that love to wrestle, and I think James would encourage that. So, so he, he liked to kind of get down and dirty a little bit. But then on the other hand, when, when James would kind of put off this sort of tough guy persona, um, he was really sort of a gentleman and a scholar of his day. Um, matter of fact, um, Adam Nicholson in his book, God's Secretaries, which is where I got a majority of this information from, phenomenal book, I, I highly recommend it. Um, Adam Nicholson kind of recorded of James and said um, that James could be at time, um, clever, impatient, vulgar, and nervous. And what seemed to be a virtue to his Scottish contemporaries became a slur to the English. So there was a transition here taking place 
um, not only in England, but also in the life of James. He has been brought under these, these, these Scottish fellows who are a bit rough around the collar. Then he goes to the high society of England, and he has to adapt to that, right? Um, but James seemed to always have a goal of bringing unity to the Scottish and to the English. Um, not, only, not only in name. Not only did he want the two crowns to, you know, sort of air quotes, come together. He wanted them to actually come together. Uh, he did not want a divided kingdom. He didn't want it to be the Scots versus the English or the English versus the Scots. He really wanted the two kingdoms to find some sense of harmony and some sense of unity. And here's the interesting thing. As such, one of the best ways he could see to unify was by developing a Bible that all could agree on. So when you, when you, when you think of the KJV, there is a political element at play here. I mean, it's, historically, it's, it's undeniable that politics were at play in the translation of the King James Version of the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that to indicate that it is a strictly or necessarily a bad thing, but I'm also not saying that it was strictly or necessarily a good thing. I don't think that we should look at um, at these as some sort of anointed God-ordained politics, right? They were just politics were at play. And I believe that God worked through those, all right? Uh, the Reformation had been quite divisive, and James saw the need to establish a sense of unity. And this was no small task, right? This was a big deal, all right? So how would his reign differ than that of Queen Elizabeth, or even that of Bloody Mary. <clears throat> well, his reign would differ um, from both his mother and um, the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth. Now, Bloody Mary and Mary of Scotland are not the same person. Right? I just want to be very clear in that. The, the You that are either watching the video or listening to the podcast, don't get the two mixed up. They are different people. Same name, but different people. All right? Elizabeth had become somewhat staunch in her, in her age, now Elizabeth is an interesting enough character. Um, I like to think there's a sort of think of her as sort of a rock star, but she's she's getting up there in years. She's getting older, and she still wants to present this persona of strength and beauty and ability. But she's just not quite who she was at one time, right? Um, uh, she had desired to move England into a more Protestant state. And this was a great thing for Protestantism, right? The queen to be on the side of the Protestants. They, they wanted that. They needed that. They desired that. Okay. Um, but the issue was that as Elizabeth aged, England was starting to become younger. Um, so and there was a disconnect starting to take place between the queen and those in her, in her kingdom. All right. Elizabeth tried to sort of build this facade of health and well-being by taking the time to do things like like dance in the courtyards, you know, so that the visitors that would come in, they would see the queen with the, the music playing and her dancing, and the, and she would hope that they would believe, oh, that all was well with the queen. When really, um, <laughs> I don't think anybody was was really buying it at the time. Um, and because when she would go to dance, she would stay for just a short time, and then she would have to go back to her chambers to rest. Um, she had become a relic, uh, sort of a has-been. Uh, her day was done. And really, it's, it's, it is a sad reality in life, just a, com a commentary here, a note on aging. Um, I, I'm 35 years old. You know, I still think I'm pretty young. My, my kids would probably say otherwise. But um, as folks begin to age, a lot of times they still have that desire, that zeal, that vigor, that drive, that want to do, um, but their body doesn't want to keep up. 
and the world begins to notice that. So aging is never or is rarely just a, a beautiful thing. Um, yeah, people people age. The circle of life, it happens. Okay, but Elizabeth, one thing of note is that she was much different than her predecessor, Queen Mary. All right? Mary I, Queen of England, or Bloody Mary, as she was known, um, she was a different story than Elizabeth all altogether. She was... Elizabeth was Protestant and wanted to move the kingdom toward Protestantism, but prior to her, Bloody Mary was was decidedly Catholic. She hated the Reformation. She couldn't stand the Reformers, and um, she she developed this moniker, this name, Bloody Mary, because she persecuted the Reformers. Um, she pers- per- pursued, I'm sorry, and killed hundreds of Protestants, forcing them. Uh, out of England to Geneva, Switzerland, where they would, at that time, translate the Geneva Bible. And the Geneva Bible is important to the King James translation. It's, it's still important today. Um, but it was in this exile that the, um, the Protestants developed what was known as the, the Geneva Bible. <coughs> and I do want to say, I believe that John Calvin was was pretty heavily invested into the Geneva Bible, those of you that are watching, feel free to check me on that because I could be wrong there, but I want to say that, that Calvin had a, had involvement with the Geneva Bible. So I'm not a Calvinist, but thank God that, that he did that. Okay, um, so Elizabeth is greatly different than, than Mary of England, much different than Bloody Mary. But there's also Mary of Scotland over here who was sort of the mortal enemy of Elizabeth, allegedly conspiring to take the throne from Elizabeth Mary would eventually, yes, okay, Mary would eventually be beheaded by um, Elizabeth. So there was bad blood there, literal blood. Uh, they were cousins, first cousins. And so Elizabeth has her own first cousin beheaded because she believed, be it true or not, uh, that's not the point, uh, that Elizabeth uh, or that Mary wanted to take the throne away from her. All right? And, and of course, one one point of, of note here is that James was the son of Mary. And this is <laughs> this is his cousin Elizabeth, who he's coming in to take her throne, take her job away. All right? It was not a good time. Not a good time um, for England and for Scotland. Uh, the two nations were not getting along. They were not seeing eye to eye. All right? But since we're talking about the Bible and not really um, doing a history lesson on these two nations, let's 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 stick to the topic at hand. It is worth noting again that Elizabeth remains quiet on the Geneva Bible. Um, now, now Mary, Bloody Mary, would have hated the Geneva Bible. Elizabeth doesn't have much to say on the Geneva Bible. But there was another important translation during that time, the Bishop's Bible, that was really trying to gain the attention of Elizabeth. And, and I, I should have my facts straight here. Forgive me again, guys, for not having all of this in order. But I believe that Elizabeth may have actually commissioned what was called the Bishop's Bible. Um, I know that her picture was on the front cover of the Bishop's Bible, so they really wanted to get her attention whether she was the one that was involved with it or not. They wanted Elizabeth to take notes. So you have the Geneva Bible over here, and Elizabeth doesn't have much to say on the Geneva Bible. And then there's the Bishop's Bible that she, she obviously she appreciates, but, but doesn't want to weigh in too heavily on... Um, Let's see. 
Okay, so she did seem to at least have an appreciation for it. All right, so then in comes King James. There was also the, the Douay Reims version, which was the Catholic version, an updated version of the Vulgate that was sort of in competition here. Um, but when I, when I study and think of the Douay Reims, I really see it as, as almost an offshoot. It, it was really the bishops and the, the King James, and Tyndale was heavily um, an influencer on the King James because the, uh, the bishop's Bible was, for all intents and purposes, a translation of the Tyndale. And you'll see later, as we get into the conversation, that the King James Version held much of, it really was just considered to be another edition or translation version of, of the Bishop's Bible. Okay, so here comes King James. He's freshly um, crowned King of England, and he, he's, he's got to make some decisions. But why did he want a translation? Why would he say, of all things, for him to bring unity in the country, why did he pick a translation? Let's tell the story. It was during the Hampton Court Conference of 1604, early in the bitter cold January snow, that church leaders would gather to discuss the current state of the church. So you have this group of Puritans, this group of Anglicans that come into Hampton Court Conference in 1604, and, and they, they begin to discuss issues in the church. And some of them were very interesting. They discussed everything from um, prayer to whether a person should stand or kneel in prayer. What would the church's position be on that? I believe baptism was one of the issues at hand. Um, the wearing of, of wedding bands and wedding rings. All of these were, were trying to be sorted out by the church at that time. They didn't know exactly what they wanted to do. Um, prayer books, and even to a certain extent, they wanted to amend certain books of the Apocrypha. <clears throat> and among those present for the conference was Secretary of State Robert Cecil, um, who was in many ways not unlike a right-hand man to James, uh, he he was very much in play with James. Now, he wasn't a translator, but he was very much um, hands-on during this whole time in, in, in the king or in the kingdom, all right? Also, um, young Prince Harry, who was 10 years old at the time. Uh, Richard Bancroft, who is very important. Lancelot Andrews is there. Uh, these, are, these are just to name a few of men who would become important later on um, who were present at the... Hampton Court Conference in 1604, okay? And during one of their heated exchanges on the role of bishops and or the presbytery in relation to the king, Puritan minister John Reynolds brings forth a list of questions. Now, some pronounce his name John Reynolds, but um, in my studies, I found time and again John Reynolds. I'm going to go with Reynolds. Reynolds, Reynolds, whatever works for you there. Um, John Reynolds is actually... So think, think of Richard Bancroft as sort of the leader of the Anglicans. He's very polished, very refined. Um, he, he's heavily invested into the Anglican church. I believe he's an archbishop. Um, again, uh, I could be wrong there. Um, but then you have John Reynolds, on the other hand, who's a Puritan minister. And Reynolds and Bancroft are not friends. They really don't like one another. And so John Reynolds begins to speak up and ask all of these questions and in this, and, and James doesn't really want anything to do with, with Reynolds. He, he won't acknowledge him. He won't listen to him. He won't answer his questions. He just kind of bypasses him and wants to move on with the, with the court. Um, and I'm sure that Reynolds, I mean, if I were him, 
was probably starting to get a little bit flustered, maybe a bit frustrated that the king just wouldn't give him the time of day until John Reynolds does something that would absolutely change the course of history. John Reynolds, um, in his list of questions, brings out this very important question. He asked the king this. He asked if he would like only one translation of ye Bible to be authentical and read in ye church. And when James hears this, he perks up. He wants to know more. He has been seeking for unity. He's been seeking for a sort of a coming together. And now here's this guy, John Reynolds, that, that James doesn't even really care to listen to. And he asks, how about this? We, we have one Bible that's read in all the church. What do you think about this, King? Um, now, one thing of note, um, was this question asked to start a new translation? Was he, Did John Reynolds really have in mind that they were going to make a new translation? Or was he wanting clarification on whether the king preferred the bishops or the Geneva? I really don't know, okay? I really don't know what John Reynolds' point was in his question. It could be taken one of the two ways, and that is left a bit open to speculation, a bit open to interpretation. I don't know what John Reynolds was initially asking there, but when he asked the question, he gets the attention of the king. <clears throat> um, <laughs> and when he does this, Richard Bancroft is there, and Bancroft, he's not going to have it. He's, at this point, he's kind of fed up. He's done with Reynolds and his line of questioning, and this was his response. He says, um, if every man's humor might be followed, there would be no end to translating. <laughs> so basically, he's saying, John Reynolds asked the question, well, should we carry on or develop a new translation? And Bancroft speaks up and says, look, if every man were to translate the Bible, we would just keep translating and translating and translating, and there would be no end of this, and we would go mad. We would just lose our minds. That's kind of what he's, he's getting at. He's trying to shut Reynolds down. Um, but, like I said, the question catches King James's attention, and James perks up at this. He did this because James knew that the bishop's Bible um, was sort of anti-Puritan. So I'm certain that John Reynolds would not have been a fan of the bishops um, because it was so uh, pro-monarchy, right? Um, I believe there were several footnotes. No, I'm sorry, in, in the Geneva Bible is what I'm getting ready to talk about. So you have the bishops' Bible over here that is pro-monarchy, pro-king. Um, like I said, Queen Elizabeth is actually found on the cover of it. But then you have the Geneva Bible, on the other hand, that is something that Reynolds would have been interested in, would have been a fan of. And there are footnotes in the, the Geneva Bible that were very anti-monarchy, monarchy, anti-king. Um, I believe over 400 times the word tyrant is actually used throughout the Old Testament of the Geneva Bible text. And so um, James wouldn't have necessarily just wanted the Geneva Bible to be spread abroad throughout all of England as, as he, the new king, is trying to come into power. And every time they open up their Bible to read it, they read of a tyrant. Um, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't have wanted that, okay? Um, so he took this as an opportunity then to pursue a brand new translation. One that was certainly not Genevan, um, but was also some, somewhat different than the Bishop's Bible. I'm not saying that James was anti-Geneva Bible, but I'm saying that he likely did not want the Geneva Bible to be the one Bible to be used by all people. 
and he didn't want to use the bishop's Bible because coming into this new day and age, uh, he, he saw the necessity because of who he was going to become that there would be need for a new translation of the Bible. All right. So by the end of the conference, it was said of James, His Highness wished that some especial pains should be taken in that behalf for one uniform translation, and this to be done by the best learned in both the universities after them, or excuse me, and this to be done by the best learned in both the universities after them to be reviewed by the bishops and the chief learned from the church from them to be presented to the privy council, and lastly, to be ratified by his royal authority. And so this whole church to be bound unto it and none other. That's a pretty bold statement, and, I, and I'll say this much. Um, for uh, those that are on the King James only side, if you're looking for fuel to your fire, I'm just going to give this to you. This, this quote said of James is one very much that goes to your favor, very much so. So if we were, if we were to <laughs> run a scoring system here, then you guys would get that point. It would go toward the King James, um, that James wanted one uniform translation to be used in all the church. Now, there's more, to the, more context to that, though. Okay, um, we can't begin to try to suppose that <laughs> 17th century rules can be superimposed onto us today and that there should still just be the one singular translation to be read in all churches. I don't think we're doing justice to the conversation, but anyhow, it is what it is. What was said is what was said. So thus began the translation to end the other translations of their day. That's not in them as to say that they were not respected or, or used or admired ever again, because that simply wasn't the case. During the course of the translation of the King James, they referred back to several versions, the Bishops, the Geneva, um, the Coverdale, the Matthews Bible. Um, so so it's not that they didn't have respect for translation. All right, but I do think it bears noting, uh, like I said, the context of the statement is here. In its time, in its time, it makes perfect sense. One translation to bring unity. One, they, there was division in the kingdom at the time. And James is seeking out unity. And he says, well, what better way than to find a translation? Well, we're not seeking unity in that way today. We don't have the divided kingdoms of England and of Scotland. And we need to find one uniform translation. So why, why would we point constantly back to one translation, right? Okay, was King James a Christian man? I would say yes, likely he was. Um, but we shouldn't attempt to try to make James some sort of a saint. Uh, we shouldn't sort of try to deify James, but we also shouldn't try to demonize James. I would say that James was likely a Christian uh, man, but but no no great saint, right? He wasn't, uh, he was King James, not Reverend James. Okay, um, the translators. Who were the translators? Now, let me just make this, this statement before I move on to who the translators were. There was actually by James and Richard Bancroft and maybe a few others, there were 15 rules of translation that were established before the committee was selected. Um, but we're going to actually, we're going to talk about this in reverse because I think it bears um, significance to understand who the translators were. And then we'll talk about what the rules of translation were. But understand that the rules were in place before the committees were formed, okay? So reports vary on the number of men involved. Um, I've heard as few as 47. I've heard as many as 60. Um but for our purposes, we're going to go with 50 uh, here tonight. 
And again, that information is lifted from God's secretaries. Um, All the men selected were Protestant, okay? (coughs) They were Protestant. Puritans and Anglicans. Those were the men that were selected, no Catholics. Um, So even though there were no Catholics directly involved in the translation, if you remember back to our conversation on Desiderius Erasmus in the translation of the Textus Receptus, he was a Catholic. Okay, so there there was a Catholic influence through the translations that were used, but none of the translators themselves were Catholic men. Okay, and this is this is worth noting here. Okay, the Catholics did not take kindly to this. They didn't like that. They didn't like that that the new kingdom going forward was going to be a sort of an anti-Catholic kingdom. They they wanted their voice. They wanted to be heard. All right. And so, um, they didn't take kindly to their exclusion from government affairs. And early on the morning of November 5th, 1605, Guy Fox was arrested. Let me go ahead and see if I can pull this picture up. Some of you may be familiar with this. There he is. <laughs> All right, Guy Fox is arrested. Now, this isn't Guy Fox on my screen. This is um, somebody else. Um, is arrested with several kegs of gunpowder in the basement of the Parliament building where James was scheduled to speak later that day. This led to an uncovering of a plot by the Catholics to overthrow James, which would have halted the translation process altogether. And from this act came the famous phrase, Remember, remember, the 5th of November. There's more to the quote than that, but... um. V here um, is one that I think of when I hear that quote, okay? Um, There was an entire plot, the gunpowder plot, uh, because the Catholics were left out of the affairs of government at at that time, left off of the translation committee. They were upset, so they decide they're going to... It was a terrorist attack, a terrorist attempt um, on Parliament to try to kill James, and this would have stopped the King James translation if they had have been successful. But this is where I believe that God was involved in the translation. God didn't want that to happen. God is sovereign. And he put a stop to that, okay? And praise God for that, right? All right. So then the 50 men were divided into six different groups and sent to three separate locations. 50 men, six groups, three locations, okay? And these locations are Westminster, Cambridge, and Oxford. Let's talk about these six different groups of men. The first group, the first Westminster Company. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, They were charged with translating Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and 1st and 2nd Kings. Lancelot Andrews that we had mentioned a bit earlier. Lancelot Andrews is is selected as the director over this first group of men. Like I said, the first portion of the Bible is, is translated by this group. He would serve as director of not only his company, but over all six companies. So Lancelot Andrews is very, very important when it comes to this. Um, down the list of names, John Overall. Okay, um, wow, John Overall. So, this is where the story starts to get, I mean, there's already been stories of, of, of death and of uh, beheading and of 
terrorist attacks or attempted terrorist attacks. But this is where it really starts to get personal and, man, it starts to get kind of slimy. So John Overall is selected to the translation committee. Um, but during this time, his wife, Anne, is involved in a very scandalous sexual affair. During the time of the translation, right? During the seven-year period, the beautiful Anne Overall fled London with Sir John Selby and was actually sent back after with a posse, a group of men, to bring her back home to um, the young bishop. All right? So there's this, this sort of sordid affair that's going on between Anne and Sir John Selby while her husband is working on the translation. And, and really, it's a shame. Think about that. that This man is trying to do um, his work, trying to, to do this incredible work of translation. And meanwhile, his wife is having an affair, and she runs off with another man. And actually, there's some pretty racy poetry uh, written about this affair but you know, I'll let you guys look that up on your own. I don't care to share that with you. Uh, but understand, not everything was rated uh, G or PG or was something that could have possibly been found on the Christian bookshelves of its time. So, um, yeah, John Overall had a lot going on, but he persisted. And he carried on with his work of the translation. Um, Hadrian Saravia, if I'm saying that name correctly, he's the only French translator. And, that, and that's interesting that there was a certain sense of diversity, even with um, the men that were chosen. He's the only French. The rest are Englishmen. John Layfield. Now, John Layfield is, is of incredible interest to me personally, um, just because I love the way that, that his view of the world tied into the work of the translation. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. John Layfield is somewhat of a world traveler. Right. Um, understand that the world is still being discovered at this time. Just in a few short years, the um, colonists will land at Plymouth Rock and and establish what would later become the United States. So the world is is literally growing around these men. And John Layfield is one of these men who loves to explore. He was particularly intrigued with the tropical regions. So the Caribbean. Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic. These were areas that John Layfield had gone to visit prior to being selected to the translation committee. All right? And so it was with this knowledge of these beautiful and tropical lands that Layfield sets out to translate. Now, let's, let's just slow down and think about this for a minute. John Layfield, world traveler. He sees these beautiful blue oceans. He sees these sandy beaches. He sees these tropical climates. He meets these um, sort of um, tropical island people. And when he is selected, he is put on the translation committee that would translate the book of Genesis. And so when you read Genesis chapter 1 in the Garden of Eden, and there's a tale of almost a tropical feel to Eden. I'm not trying to take away from anything that the Bible says, but we need to understand that how the translation played together. Well, likely a lot of that language comes from Layfield and his travels were in the back of his mind as he would translate the ancient texts. Okay, so so for me, I see this direct connection in these places like Eden uh, when I read the King James Version. All right. Um, other translators on that first committee are Robert Tighe, if I'm saying his name correctly, correctly, Richard Thompson, William Bedwell, and Francis Burley. That is the first Westminster company. Okay. The first Cambridge company. They are charged with translating first and second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, 
Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. So these are the poetry books of the Bible. Um, a little bit of history, but, but this group, their focus is on the poetry books. So if you like the poetry books of the Bible, you have this group of men to thank for it when you read the King James Version. Not that they were the authors, but in the translation process. I love reading Psalms. The 23rd Psalm has spoken to me as much or more than any other setting of Scripture in the entire Bible, in my entire life. I'm sorry. Say what you will. There is no more beautiful piece of literature ever written than the 23rd Psalm in the King James Version of the Bible. There's my own opinion for you. <clears throat> the director, Edward Lively. Um, translators are uh, John Richardson, uh, Lawrence Chatterton. Okay, Lawrence Chatterton. <coughs> Mind you, poetry books, the Song of Solomon. So Chatterton was a great preacher of his day. Once, after preaching for two solid hours and pausing to take a break, the crowds, literally, they stand to their feet and they cry out, for God's sake, go on. Now, if you're a pastor, <laughs> hearing that, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself. <laughs> There's never been a time I've taught a lesson, preached a sermon, um, or I'm certain I've done this podcast, that you guys have uh, listened to it and just thought, man, keep going. Well, they did with Chatterton. They loved him. His translation of the Song of Solomon is quite interesting, okay? And I'm going to add a disclaimer here, okay? I don't believe, before I get into what I say, I do not believe in any way that Chatterton or any of his pupils, his students, anybody that sat under him uh, was a homosexual, that there was any inappropriate activities that went, play, went on, um, that took place during that time. I don't believe that, okay? But we do need to make note of the sort of romantic era of time that we are, are speaking of here, okay? One of Chatterton's students at Emmanuel College, William Sancroft, had quite a close bond with a fellow classmate, Arthur Bonnest. Uh, the two were roommates, and when they were not together... They would correspond by, by letter. Um, this wasn't an odd practice for its day. Um, much like today, friends will, will text or talk or call or, oh my goodness, so many avenues of communication, um, Snapchat, Instagram, however they, they communicate. So it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be anything unlike two friends that meet at college and go their respective ways during the summer and just still stay in contact, okay? So the writing of letters isn't something to get excited about. But here's an excerpt from one of the letters. From Bonus to Sancroft. Listen to what he says. Thou art oftener in my thoughts than ever. Thou art nearer me than when I embraced thee. Thou sayest thou lovest me. These are two men. Thou sayest thou lovest me. Good. Well, repeat it again and again. Okay, now, 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 like I said, this is not an indicator of some inappropriate or homosexual affair between these two men. But what it is, it, it helps us to understand that this type of speech was something that Chatterton would have been aware of when he goes to translate the Song of Solomon, okay? So a lot of that romantic language that we read in the Song of Solomon could be due largely in part to Chatterton and and his understanding of the Romantic language of the day. Um, of course, there was debate by the Jews in times past 
uh, whether the book should have even been included in the canon or not. Uh, but it was there at this point. It was established. It was canonical. They accepted it as the Word of God. And the translators viewed this romantic and even sexual language, not in some perverse way, but really as a, with, with a sense of devotion to Christ and the church. Okay, rather than the perversion that, that we're so accustomed to in the world and the culture that we see today, all right? Uh, other translators on that committee, Roger Andrews, Thomas Harrison, Robert Spaulding, Andrew Bing, and Francis Dillingham. The first Oxford company, they are in charge of translating Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Malachi. John Harding is the director of this group. And on this committee, John Reynolds. He's the first to suggest the translation in the first place in Hampton Court. Remember? Um, also, he recalled a time when shortly after completing his BA from Corpus Christi College, uh, where he actually converted from Catholicism to Protestantism, that he was cast to play the female Queen Elizabeth in a play. And he was... <laughs> Reynolds hated this. He was embarrassed by it. Um, he, and he came to hold in his Puritan ideologies and views a very anti-theater approach, right? Especially, especially hating the roles that involved cross-dressing. He had been down that road. He had dealt with this. He didn't want anything else to do with it. Um, his, it was against his Puritan worldview, um, his view of Christianity that was very Puritan. He, he hated it. Um, and sadly, he dies before the translation is completed. Um, but it is said this of Reynolds, that he would have weekly meetings to discuss the translation as he lay on his deathbed dying. Um, and when it was suggested that he slow down for his health's sake, this is what he had to, had to respond and reply with, and this is so powerful to me. He replied that, for the sake of life, he would not lose the very end of living. Guys, I, the more I read about John Reynolds, the more I like John Reynolds. And I really wish that we could have more Christians um, that had that approach. Let me read you the quote again. For the sake of life, he would not lose the very end of living. I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of people. Side note here that you know they, they, they don't want to be inconvenienced for their faith. They don't want to suffer. They don't want to be in a situation where they are struggling. They don't want to be in a financial struggle. They don't want to be in a personal struggle. They don't want to be even in a church struggle. Um, men that do great things for God, they are able to overlook those things. If you find yourself in a position to where you are becoming somewhat self-seeking, realize that our duty is to crucify our flesh, right? Okay, I'm not going to spend too much time there, but I really like John Reynolds. Um, Thomas Holland, close friend of John Reynolds. It's actually said that he was present at Reynolds' death. Um, Thomas Holland, okay. His sister-in-law, Anne Gunter, uh, took the momentary spotlight in 1609 from the, the translation of the King James Version um, when it is said she was believed to be demon-possessed and could, this, was, this was evidence that she was possessed. She could read with no lights on. They would go into a dark room, and she could say, no lights, I can read, because I'm full of the devil. Um, 
Holland and fellow translator John Harding were called on to testify at her hearing before <laughs> before everything came to light, no pun intended. And um, come to find out everything was all made up. So, um, yeah, Thomas Holland's sister-in-law kind of just gets right in the way for a little while, and they have to sidebar off. Other translators, Richard Kilby, Miles Smith, who was very important, he would write the famous and very beautiful and very long preface to the uh, King James Version, and he was on this committee. Richard Brett and Richard Fairclaw. Okay, the second Cambridge company. So there were there were two sets of companies at each location. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, they were charged with translating the Apocrypha. Now, some may not be aware of this. In the original 1611 edition of the King James Version, the Apocrypha was actually included. Um, it wasn't until some time later that the Apocrypha was excluded from the King James but initially, the translators did translate the apocrypha, those apocryphal writings between the two testaments. All right, uh, John Duport was the director. On this group of translators were John Boy, William Brainwaith, Andrew Downs, Jeremiah Radcliffe, Robert Ward, and Samuel Ward. Let me talk to you just a little bit about Samuel Ward. All right, uh, possibly Samuel Ward is one of the most conflicted of the translators. Um, he just seems to be a man who has an internal struggle for the majority of his life. Um, he spoke with a stammer, which actually caused him to enter the field of mathematics rather than the ministry. He didn't feel as though he could speak because he stammered and stuttered so badly. Um, and so he decides to enter the field of mathematics, but he's still a brilliant scholar. Um, and he truly speaks to the Puritan mind. In his own diary, he writes of his struggles with pride, with lust, um, with gluttony. Uh, he speaks of a lack of interest in sermons and having no desire to pray. Um, he was really a very self-debasing man. He had a tendency to really look down on himself. <laughs> he writes this in, in one of his journal entries. He writes of his longing for, for damsons which is a, a sort of a type of plum. Um, I'm not sure what year it was, but the dates are August 8th and August the 13th. He writes this on August the 8th. My longing after damsons, when I made a vow not to eat in the orchard, oh, that I could so long after God's graces. So he passes this orchard, he sees these plum-like fruits hanging, and he wants them so greatly, and he's convicted, if we could use that word in his heart, because he doesn't desire God to the extent that he desires these damsons. Um, then on August 13th, he says, My intemperate eating of damsons, also my intemperate eating of cheese after supper. Um, he makes note of his gluttony. <laughs> That's a sin that we don't hear preached against a lot, isn't it? Um, at least not with any degree of seriousness. Uh, too often we like to pat ourselves on the back for being righteous, don't we? Oh, I did so good. I, you know, I, I prayed. I, I read so many chapters in my Bible. I went to church, whatever I did. Um, but Samuel Ward is the opposite. Um, he was not one of those pat himself on the back kind of guys. Those were the translators of the Apocrypha. The second Oxford company, charged with translating the Gospels, Acts, and Revelation. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then skip over to Revelation. Thomas Ravis is the director. Um, let's see. 
George Abbott. He seemed to be poised for success just from the start of his life. Um, almost one of those kind of guys that was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, if you could say it that way. As the story goes, while his mother was pregnant with him, she had a dream that if she would catch and eat a certain type of fish, her child would grow to a place of prominence. So the following day, she goes down to a river, to the river, and corners one of these fish somehow or another uh, with a pail. How, how she was able to pull that off, I don't know. I'm not much of a fisherman, um, but she does it. She corners up a fish in a river with a bucket and takes it home, cooks it, and eats it because she believes that God has told her that if she would, um, that her son would be important. <clears throat> and the town is enthralled by this story. They're enthralled with the young boy as he's born and grows. Uh, many of them pledge money to sponsor his education when he gets older. They're like, um, yeah, you know, little, little George, little George Abbott, he's going to be somebody. Let's, let's, let's give him some money. Let's send him to school. <clears throat> as he aged, he had a tendency to fall just in the right places. He befriended the right people. And this is where we really start to see the politics of the translators come into play because um, he's friends with John Reynolds, the Puritan uh, minister who has the idea for the translation in the first place. Um, because he is friends with him, he's present at Hampton Court in 1604. And subsequently, he's named to the translation committee. I'm not saying he's not a brilliant scholar, scholar but I am saying that politics likely played a role in his being selected to the translation committee. In later life, fellow translator Lancelot Andrews, remember Lancelot Andrews, would come to his side when a possible murder accusation is lobbied at him. And you can do your own studies to find out that story. Um, and at his trial, he stands before King James himself. There was a lot of inner workings of politics here with um, George um, Abbott. Other translators, Richard Eads, Giles Thompson, Sir Henry Seville, John Perrin, Ralph Ravens, John Harmar, Leonard Hutton, John Aglanobi, or Aglionby, and James Montague. I found it interesting there was a Montague there. Um, <laughs> if you're a fan of Shakespeare at all, which I really am not, but you know the Montagues and the Capulets from the story of Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> James Montague. The second Westminster Company. Uh, and this is our final group to discuss. Charged with translating the New Testament epistles. William Barlow is the director. Um, on the committee are members John Spencer, Roger Fenton, Ralph Hutchinson, William Dakins, Michael Rabbit, and Thomas Sanderson. Um, and all these different perspectives that these different men have, different backstories, different worldviews, different approaches to things. It, it, it gives us a different outlook on the translators themselves, but we must not forget that these were some of the greatest scholars of their day. These were not just run-of-the-mill men. These were doctors. These were um, great scholars. These were bishops. The, they, these were very learned, very intelligent men, all right? Um, these Puritan, Anglican, uh, Calvinist, Protestant men were each one genius in their own right. So we must not, we, or we must be careful 
not to overhumanize them when we look at the, their their failings and their struggles of you know spouses having affairs on them or or some that were just seemingly sought, uh, set up for success or or men that struggled with with gluttony and wanting to overindulge on eating plums we we don't want to overhumanize them but also we must be careful not to overscholarize them either right they were at the end of the day still just just men. And I have heard the translators painted out into this light that they were almost like superheroes of their day. And that's just simply not the case, right? That's not who they were. They, they, they were men. One final note that I might add to this is that when we talk about the translators, growing up, I had a tendency to believe that somehow these men would just, four or five men, 10 men would venture off into a dark room with a candle and write out the Bible and God would just speak it, you know, into them and they would be able to understand these ancient texts. That's not the case. These men were learned before this ever happened. It was a very organized process. I believe they would meet weekly and not every day uh, throughout the seven years, about once a week. They had things to do. They had lives to live. Um, so it was a very natural, very human endeavor, a very human undertaking that God was very much involved in. I do not want to discount or act like that God wasn't involved in the translation of the King James Version of the Bible. I do believe that God was, all right? Uh, so, um, all right, guys. Well, that ends our discussion on the selection of the translators. Guys, next week we will pick up again, starting with the 15 rules of translation but for now, that is going to do it. Thanks for stopping by tonight, guys. I look forward to next week getting into the rules and talking about some of the translation itself. But until then, uh, God bless you guys. I may not know you, but I am praying for you. God bless. Have a great week, and I will catch you next time.